Hope you're doing well this morning. Uh, my name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here, and privilege to be with you. And you can grab your Bibles. We're going to go to the book of Ruth. We'll be in chapter 3 this morning. And uh, as you go there, I want to ask God for help for, for me and for all of us as we, we listen to his word. God, thank you. Uh, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for your word that um, is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path that convicts us of sin. And I want to be reminded this morning that your promises uh, give us life. There's life that's found in your word. And you speak to us through it. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. Thank you for giving us hope and life in your word. Thank you that your word is that which produces reverence for you. And I pray, God, this morning in the brief time we have together that you would increase our love for you, uh, decrease our love for the things of this world. And as we look at Ruth chapter 3, there's certainly an emphasis on the picture of redemption that ultimately should move us to the person who provides redemption. Help us to look intently at this story, but maybe more importantly, help us to look through this story to the Lord Jesus and the one, as the one who provides us the redemption that we so desperately need but can never find in and of ourselves or in any other place. So we look to you now, we ask for your help. Spirit, I ask for your guidance personally to, to be helpful to your people. And I pray, God, the Spirit, that you'd move in us in such a way that you would remove any sort of distortion or confusion or deception, make your word clear to us, bring conviction in our hearts where we need it, bring encouragement where we're discouraged, hope where we feel hopeless. Thank you that we can find rest in you. Thank you that we can find rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you're using a chair Bible, we'll be on page 208, I believe it is, Ruth chapter 3. Before we dive in, um, let me ask you a question. What, uh, what gives you rest? Like, where do you find rest? Naps? Thanks for, thanks for the interaction. Often everybody's just like, I'm not answering that. Somebody else answered that question. Naps? Maybe, yeah. Maybe mattresses? Anybody else notice that mattress shops just abound like car washes around here? Mattresses, like my pillow, you know, like maybe certain pillows. I used to make fun of a friend of mine who's a grown man would travel with his pillow and his blanket. In my 20s and 30s, I was like, what in the world? Like, stop being such a softie. But now in my 40s, I'm like, yeah, I kind of get it. I kind of understand what that's all about. Like, <laughs> it gets better, it gets worse. Uh, but we look for rest in all sorts of places, right? I mean, we look for it in the things we do. We look for it in people. And, and so maybe just to ponder that question, like where do you look for rest, is a good one for us to consider. But, but I think beyond the, the surface of what can feel like maybe just a surfacey question is a really deep, significant question. Because when we, when we look at the Bible and we look at chapter 3 in the book of Ruth, what we're going to talk about is where do we find rest that's not just a 
how can I get a nap today sort of rest? Like, how can I take the edge off my stress by sleeping for 20, 30 minutes on the couch? Like, the rest I get when I watch a football game after, after preaching twice in the morning. Like, it's not that kind of rest. It's like a soul-deep rest. Like a, a rest that actually affords you the, the benefit of something you can't find anywhere else in this life. And so maybe another question to ask, be like, what, what makes you restless? Like, is there something that's making you restless? And it may be that for some of you this morning, like you don't even, you haven't even quite acknowledged the fact that you're restless because you're looking for rest in truly all the wrong places. And that is one of our problems as human beings is that we look for rest and reprieve in places where it can't be found, just like we look for life in places where it can't be found. But this morning, we're going to look at where true rest is found, soul-deep rest, rest that settles all of our restlessness. And just a quick revisit on chapter 2 before we read just a, a couple of verses at the end of chapter 2, what we saw last week. You know, the book of Ruth is a, is a wonderful story. Like in many ways, it is a love story, which we're going to get into more uh, this morning than we have the first couple of chapters uh, it starts as a story of loss, where uh, Elimelech and his family, Naomi, his wife, and their two sons go to Moab. They find husbands, and Elimelech and the two sons-in-law die. There's a lot of loss. But one of the things we see as well, really quickly, is that it's also a book of, of contrasts, where the chapter one began with a, a famine, it ends with a harvest, and we see in the midst of that loss, like the contrast of the same dark clouds that, that bring deep mercy. And in many ways, you see the contrast of the pattern in Ruth is really the, the pattern in the gospel itself. That we saw last week that, that God in his kindness makes foreigners part of his family. That in his grace, like he brings people out of darkness and he makes them so light that they are light in the Lord. Like he takes people that are far off and he brings them near by just a work of his kindness. And so you and I, if you're in Christ, like you are a living contrast because of the mercy of God. Like you once were something and now you're something new, so new that you're a new creation. It's like you were born all over again. And so this chapter begins to show to us not just the deep love of Boaz and Ruth, but the deep love that God has for us and the way that it satisfies our deepest longings. We saw in chapter 2 the way that physical hunger, that God's favor satisfied Naomi and Ruth's physical hunger in abundance. We just saw God's generosity in that through Boaz to Ruth as she showed initiative, went into the field to glean. In Ruth 2.20, as Ruth comes home, as it were, with her hands full of leftovers and all of this grain that she was given, and Naomi looks at her and is like, where, where have you been today? Right? We comment on that. It's like, what, what kind of field have you been in that you've found this abundance? And ultimately, she shares that it was in the field of Boaz. And there's two places that I want to highlight before we get into our chapter 3 this morning because there's a, a similar word that she used. Ruth 2.19 2, and 20 says this, this is Naomi responding to Ruth. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. In verse 20, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living 
or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Before we get into redemption, we see like even in Naomi, uh, one commentator noted, it's worth noting as well, in this life of contrast that we have Naomi. So like we move from famine to harvest, and Naomi even at this point has moved from bitterness, so bitter, so dark in her pain in chapter one that she wanted to be called bitter. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter because of my loss. And now she's speaking words of blessing. So she's moved from a place of bitterness to blessing. And maybe that's something you need to hear this morning is that we serve a God who takes people who seem to be in inescapable bitterness and heaviness and moves into a place of blessing. Even if that blessing comes only in the form of forgiveness of sins, it's enough to pick up the deepest heart and cause us to walk anew. But the main idea this morning is this. It's just more of an invitation, exclamation, and this is it. Find rest in the Redeemer. Find rest in the Redeemer. That's the invitation. It seems to be the essence of this chapter. In chapter 1, we learned about the loss and and one of the things we see in this, this uh, instance is that that loss turned into a, really a predicament for Naomi and Ruth, socially, culturally, that they needed help. Like they were in a very vulnerable, difficult position as two widows in a massively patriarchal society where they really had no ability to provide for themselves financially and their safety was really going to be found in marriage for Ruth. And we see that in Ruth 3 in just a moment, but one of the things I want to explain before we read this story entirely is just the picture of redemption, because it'll add a little bit of understanding as we read, because sometimes you read stories, you're like, I don't even know, as I'm reading, I'm not even sure how to connect the dots, so maybe this will be a little bit helpful. So Naomi indicates Boaz isn't the, is is a relative, a particular relative, a, a, a near kinsman or kinsman redeemer, depending on your translation, it might just be redeemer, it might be near kinsman, it might be kinsman redeemer. But it was the right and responsibility of the closest male relative to redeem Elimelech's estate. So that was the, the dad, Naomi's husband. And in Israel, there was, a, there was a near kinsman who had the right and responsibility to redeem property for the, the family left behind. It would also, for a childless widow, would marry the, the brother in most instances to perpetrate his name so he wouldn't be without child without a legacy, as it were. So that's the picture of a redeemer. It's kind of a dual, uh, a dual purpose, as it were, property redemption and what we see what's called levirate marriage, where a brother marries his, uh, uh, his, his widow's husband. I'm sorry, marries his widow, not his widow's husband, because he'd be dead. But you see that in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy chapter 25. But that's the picture. So in this moment, we have both taking place. There seems to be this, the way in which there's a property redemption by the near kinsman as well as perpetrating his name. But one thing to remember is that what we're seeing, and this is a really important thing that we see this, through this whole book, this isn't just a picture of like um, ancient estate planning. That's not what Ruth is about. So what it is is just another moment where we we look kind of in the story, but we're kind of looking through it to a greater story, like a greater picture. So we look to and we look at, 
Ruth and Boaz, but we are very much looking through them to a greater picture of redemption. And so that's what we'll do. Let's read Ruth chapter 3. We're going to read the whole thing in one shot. I kind of wrestled with what's best here, but we're going to read the whole thing. We'll go back and trust God will give me the grace to navigate through this in time. But This is God's word for us, Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garments you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, this is Naomi replying to Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is God's word. It's an interesting story, huh? And I don't know if you've read this before today or even leading up to this morning. And let me, let me comment on some twists and turns in the story. And then I want to just commend us to kind of look through the story ultimately to that main idea to find rest in the Redeemer. And I'll highlight a few particular ways that God's put on my heart to highlight that. So this is the second time that Naomi has referred to the word rest in connection with Ruth getting married. So back in Ruth 1.9, she used the same picture as she commended her daughters-in-law to go back to Moab to find rest in the homes of their, their mothers and their families. So Ruth and Naomi were in a desperate social position. 
But this mention of rest takes on a different meaning with Boaz. Naomi knew marriage was going to be a source of Ruth's security and protection and provision. She could only find rest in the Redeemer, in a Redeemer. As we saw later in the story, there was another kinsman who was closer, as it were, in the kind of the pecking order, who Boaz ultimately, we'll see this more in chapter 4, defers to uh, before confirming that he's going to be the one to redeem her. And what I found really interesting studying this week is, as I mentioned at the outset of Ruth, I haven't spent a ton of time in Ruth over the years. Um, it's interesting to find that there's, there's dispute in this chapter as to whether or not what Naomi recommended is actually a good idea. Like, was this, was this shrewd or was it shady? Like, was this quick thinking or was this kind of questionable? And I don't know that that's really the most important thing for us to figure out. But I think what we do know based on the rest of the book and even what came before chapter 3 is that Ruth loved God and, Naomi, and Boaz loved God. Like their character was noteworthy. So even if Naomi's kind of movement or like the twists and turns of her recommendations weren't quite above board, there was a certain security that Ruth had in the character of Boaz and his response to her in the moment was also commending her character, that she was a, a woman of excellence. But there's no question the way Naomi is directing Ruth to approach Boaz is pretty bold. There was a way in which she was commending her, like, hey, go after the one who is to be our redeemer. Confirm that you want him to, re to redeem you. So everything that she recommended was kind of movement to that end. And what you might be able to say is that Boaz was, was older than Ruth, so maybe in some ways, like, he didn't, he didn't think he had a shot, so he didn't take the initiative, potentially. So maybe that's why she was as forward as, as it seems here. This picture of kind of, root, you know, Naomi's, like, military-like orders, like, hey, go under the cover of darkness. Don't let anybody see you. Like you can picture Ruth in camo, right? Uh, she wasn't in camo. I don't think, but I doubt it. To hide under the cover of darkness, like, it... It may not be sneaky or lack wisdom, but may have been just another picture of, of seeking to protect Ruth's reputation, like much like Boaz did the morning after. She said, hey, don't let anybody know that she came. Like in this cultural moment, it would have been unlikely, unwise for a woman to go alone to the threshing floor at night. There's no street lights. It's dark. She's unprotected but yet she's protected in the sense of going to a man who is the redeemer, who's a godly man. And even in the moment of vulnerability, there was a movement toward him because of his character that commended her to follow through on Naomi's plans. But the plan also reflects some, something of the desperate need and vulnerability of both Naomi and Ruth. And like the hopeful, expectant faith that we talked about last week in chapter 2, that Ruth goes out, she's like, I'm going to glean, I'm going to find favor, there's going to be someone who shows me favor. She expected that the Lord was going to show up and provide, and it seems like maybe there's a, an expected faith that's kind of rubbed off on Naomi in this plan. It's like, go, like, go to him, expecting more kindness from the kindness that's already been shown by Boaz. It's almost like he, it's clear he favors you, like, get ready, go quietly, lay at his feet, and wait till he stirs and listen to his word and do whatever he says. One commentator, Barry Webb, 
said this. He said, this moment where she goes and she uncovers his feet, lays at his feet, this moment can hardly be seen as anything other than an invitation to love. But given what we've already been shown of Boaz and Ruth's character, it would be going too far to see it as a crude seduction scene. It's far too delicate for that. Given the way in which the word of God seems to commend their character, any notion of this just being like trickery or seductive seems to be pretty easily dismissed. And this picture of her getting ready, you know, this like wash, anoint yourself, put on your cloak. I mean, it's kind of inescapable. Like clean yourself up, smell good, put on your cloak, go. Yeah, so when, when Haley and I first met, uh, I, was, I was waiting tables at a mediocre Italian restaurant. And uh, she came in, the first time she came in with her mom, dead set on making it clear she wasn't trying to impress me. So she came in after playing tennis, like in her tennis gear, she had a hat on. It was like, whatever, you know, I'm not really trying to impress you. But she dressed differently that day than she did when we got married. And the day that we got married, we were both very formal because there was something special about the moment. And it seems reasonable to infer that what's happening here is very much like Naomi saying, get, get ready for your wedding day. Appear before the, the man who will be your husband, who ultimately becomes her husband. Ezekiel 16, 9 through 12, gives the picture of the Lord washing his bride with water and anointing her with oil in order to wed her. A picture of God's relationship with Israel. And it seems Naomi's telling Ruth to get ready like a bride on her wedding day. Now, there's a couple of things I'd say here. Because what, what we don't need to see, what we shouldn't see in this story, is that somehow you only come to the Redeemer once you're cleaned up. So it's a potential that someone could read this story and be like, hey, you've got to really make yourself presentable before you go sit at the feet of the Redeemer. That's not the picture. That's a distortion of the gospel. So I'd say it this way, is that God redeems us because of his steadfast love, not due to our loveliness. It's very clear in the Bible. In Psalm 44, verse 25 and 26, says, For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. And we say as if to God, rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. If anybody in this room has any twinge of a sense, like you've got to clean up your life before you come to the Redeemer to find rest, may it be that today the Lord strikes that from the record in your heart. There's nothing you can do to clean yourself up. He's the only one that can make you new. Your belly, my belly, our bodies cling to the dust, and we need God to raise us up out of the dust to make us new. God redeems us because of his steadfast love, not because of our loveliness. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Secondly, I'd say this, our Redeemer's love for us makes us live a life that pleases him. There is something of a picture of it mattering the way that we appear before our Redeemer, as it were. There is something in this that says once we're loved by, redeemed by our Redeemer, there is a life lived that adorns itself with good works in such a way that pleases God. Titus 2, 11 through 14 says it this way. It says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. That's Jesus. Jesus, the grace of God personified. Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved unto good works, right? Like holiness is a pursuit of people who have been made righteous in the sight of God by faith. It's something that should mark our lives. So moving on in the story, how many of you have ever slept outside or in a tent? Like you know the startling nature of when your feet become uncovered when you're cold? It usually wakes you up, and that's what happens to Boaz. <laughs> it seems like there's a strategy like uncover his feet, and so understandably, the cool air that would have come through the area where the threshing floor was hit his feet. He's startled, and then he's startled again because a woman's laying at his feet. He's like, whoa, wait a second, who are you? In verse 8, at midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So in chapter 2, we saw how Ruth was humbled to be shown favor by Boaz, right? Because she treated her as a foreigner, as family, invited her to the, to the table, which was remarkable, like a remarkable display of love. She was a recipient of comfort and kindness from Boaz, even though she knew she was an outsider. But now, she doesn't identify herself as a, a Moabitess, an outsider, a foreigner. What does she identify herself as? A servant. I'm, he, I'm here. I'm a maidservant. I'm here to be humbly submitted to, to you. And she uses beautiful language. Spread your wings or your garment over me, your servant, for you are a redeemer. The picture would be something like this. I'm asking you to, to cover me with your redeeming authority. Let it cover me. Let it be to me a mark over me that I belong to you. Redeem me by the authority that alone belongs to you. Ruth 2.12, the same word is used, wings. The Lord repay you for what you have done. This is Boaz interacting with Ruth. The Lord repay you Ruth, for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Ruth's words to Boaz were a reflection of and kind of emblematic of the way in which she had sought refuge under the wings of God. She now seeks under the wings of Boaz himself. Really beautiful picture. So find rest in the Redeemer. Just a couple of subpoints here. Find rest in the Redeemer because he provides rest to the helpless. So if you picture yourself as Ruth going to, like in the middle of the night, laying at his feet, like the, her posture at Boaz's feet was one of really helplessness. Like I have no other place to go, no other hope. I'm at your feet, I'm here to do your word, and I'm helpless apart from you. And it really is a really sweet picture of the posture we should have and possess when we come to Christ, our Redeemer. Romans 5, 6, for while you were still weak or helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So for us, much like with Ruth, it's like I'm here. Like I'm powerless. I have no power on my own to redeem myself. 
Spread your wings over me and redeem me. Help me, the helpless one. I don't have anything to bring but empty hands, eager to respond to your word and, and to do your will. And there is rest in the Redeemer when we embrace our helplessness and find help and power in him. Amen? Find rest in the Redeemer. He provides rest to the helpless. As we keep going on in verse 10, Boaz says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Again, as I mentioned, this seems to be some indication that maybe he didn't move toward like his right of redemption because he, being older than Ruth, maybe that was in his mind, some sort of block for that. But he highlights there's plenty of other options for Ruth to pursue. But she chose him because he's the redeemer. How about us? Like a question that should come up out of, bubble up out of this moment is like, what have we gone after that's not the Redeemer? Like, what do we go after? What other places do we try to find protection and provision that aren't the Redeemer? Where else do you look for rest and forego actual rest because it's only found? In the Redeemer. Those are really appropriate questions to ask in light of this moment. Like you could have gone, you could have gone elsewhere, but you came to me. The language sound familiar? Jesus' anthem, time and time again. What? Come to me. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Find rest where it can truly be found. Are you trusting in other sources for hope and for rest? In verse 11, there's this wonderful statement. If you can kind of put yourself in the place, it's dark. I mean, there's faith on Ruth's part, but ultimately she's vulnerable. Boaz's character commends her in this moment, but yet there's a, there's a sense of vulnerability and his words are what? Like, hey, don't be, don't be afraid. Like, do not fear. Do not fear. I'll do for you all that you ask. You're a woman of excellence. Here's my encouragement here. Find rest in the Redeemer. His voice offers comfort. I loved Warren Wiersbe and his commentary on this section. He made a comment that I'll share just because I can't improve upon it. He drew out from this moment just this picture when in the darkness of midnight, that's really what's happening. Like the darkness of midnight, there's no light. So, so Ruth can't see Boaz's face, but she can hear his voice. And Warren Wiersbe kind of draws into that picture, like, like you might be in the darkness of midnight, and you can't see the Redeemer's face, but you can sure still hear his voice, because he still speaks through his word. And his promises echo in the hearts of his people. And one of the words that he uses as a good shepherd is do not fear. Do not fear. And so the psalmist then says, I will not fear. I will fear no evil. Right? Even in the, the darkness, even in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the words of Boaz to Ruth Again, emblematic, we look through them and see the same words of God to us as our good shepherd. Although he, the night hides his face, the safest place is still to be at his feet. 
still to be at his feet. We don't have to be afraid. I just want to say this. I just I think it's worth saying, depending on your background and where you are spiritually, and if you're, if you're not a Christian in this room, I'm so grateful that you're here. This is a safe place to hear a really dangerous message. But one of the things about the gospel, one of the many changes the gospel brings is that, that it, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the, is the difference between being afraid of God and fearing God. We have every single reason apart from Jesus Christ to be afraid of God. The wrath of God is what we are saved from because of Jesus. But because of Jesus, we don't have to be afraid of God. We find him to be a father who says, don't be afraid. But instead we find ourselves in this reverent, submissive fear to honor and serve and follow him. But the gospel is the difference between being afraid of God and the fear of God. If you find yourself afraid of God, let me just submit to you, it's because you don't understand the gospel. If you find yourself afraid of the idea of meeting God, it's because you've either forgotten about the gospel or you've never understood it. Because perfect love, namely in Jesus Christ and his dying for sinners, drives away all fear. That's what we see in 1 John chapter 4. Now this, I'm in danger here of getting on a little bit of a soapbox. I just came from uh, yesterday and Friday. I was part of a conference in town, an unorthodox conference, and it was on the family this year. And pa- Pastor Daniel from Eastwood Community gave a really good charge to men and women as it relates to just the uniqueness of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. Last week, I kind of leaned into the men, and uh, I'll ask you for, to forgive me, but I don't really think I need you to forgive me. I just want you to bear with me as your pastor because I'm going to speak to the men again. Um, men, I would say this, like the world needs more men like Boaz. And let me just share with you my heart in a few brief words. Like the world needs men whose presence is a source of protection and comfort for the vulnerable. The world needs men who don't objectify women but who seek to protect them. The world needs men who speak words of affirmation and who honor the glory of biblical womanhood. The world needs men whose word is their bond and men who take responsibility and say, I will. The world needs more men like Boaz. And I want you to be those men. Like I want me to be that kind of man. And I want you to look for something higher than what the world gives and commends us. Because the world doesn't expect much of men. From young men to old. The world doesn't expect much of you. But God has a greater vision for us than what the world peddles out. And all of its jokes and poking at the silliness of men and depicting us as those who are irresponsible and detached. The world needs more men like Boaz. And Ruth and Boaz foreshadow what Paul calls the mystery of the way marriage displays the gospel. Jesus Christ laying his life down for the church and the church's bride submitted to him as the head. And so let me speak to the husbands in this room. Like, is our character a source of security for our wives? Because it was for Ruth. Do our words provide them consistent encouragement? Is our presence a place of protection and refuge? Are they assured of our commitment to them and 
our marriage, a little bit like, as the Lord lives, I will do this? Do we rejoice over them? Are we humbled to be their husband? Of all the men you could have chased, you chose me, right? And there might be a man in this room who feels in his heart something like this. I would be all those things to my wife if she would, like Ruth, just kind of lay at my feet and submit to my words. I would find it easier. It sounds funny, but it's true. A lot of us, and I'm going to speak to the men directly. And ladies, there might be some other moment, but I'm going to speak to your guys. A lot of us want to say something like this. If she would, I would. Just fill in the blank. If she would, I would. Now, if, if the vision is to love your wife as Christ loved the church, do you see any Bible verse where God says, if you would, I would, as it relates to his love for you? Does he love you because you make yourself lovable? His love, it's his love for you that softens your heart and makes you moldable and submitted to him. And so maybe, just maybe, the response should be, even if she won't, I will. Like, even if she won't, I will. Because that's what God has called me to do. That's what biblical manhood is, not just serving, but laying your life down. So it's not, if she will, I will. It's even if she won't, I will. I do, and I still do. And so my heart was just stirred yesterday, thinking about my own life and like how I'm doing in this realm and just in my own family. And man, I want more for the men in this body that, that we serve. Because there, there is a, there's a deep, a deep impact that God brings about the small group of men who are humbly submitted to him and hungry to follow his word. And it starts in laying our lives down in obedience to him and for the benefit of those around us. And we'll move on. I'm going to have to close off here quickly. The last point I want to give you is find rest in the Redeemer because he's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. And this last section you see these pictures of waiting. Verse 14, so she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. He said, let it not be known. And he gives her some barley. And then at the end, you see this commendation from Naomi to Ruth. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter, matter today. So Ruth didn't go to the threshing f- floor for more barley. She went to find a husband. But the Lord still provided for her something that she needed in the moment while she had to wait for what she wanted and what she longed for. And man, that's a picture of the Christian life, right? God just providing for us what we need. Sometimes we're having to wait for the things that we so long for. But in the middle, like in that messy waiting middle, like God is faithful. Find rest in him because he's trustworthy. And he'll do what he said he's going to do. And you can find rest in his character because he's trustworthy and faithful. 
He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. He'll not turn you away. He'll never leave, you'll never leave his presence empty-handed. You may be still be waiting for him, but he's still actively providing for you. He's faithful, he's generous. And Ruth waited with faith because she had observed Boaz's character. Like, I've seen his generosity. I've seen his kindness. I've seen the way he provides for me. I've seen his consistency and faithfulness. He's been true to his word. So I wait with courageous, hopeful anticipation of his answer. I just wonder, like, what would it have been like for, for Ruth to hear the words from Naomi? Hey, just wait. Like, no human assurance as to what's going to happen. Like, whether or not Boaz will be her husband or this other redeemer he's going to pursue in chapter 4. That's a pretty significant moment of waiting. Like, who's going to be, who's going to be my husband? Safe to say she has a love for Boaz at this point, but yet she had to wait. And many times the Lord will ask us to wait, to be still. And when you know God is your redeemer, like it fills you with a sense of courage when you're called to wait. It's what you see at the end of Psalm 27. It says, wait on the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait on the Lord. Waiting is courageous when you're waiting on God. It's not a sign of apathy. It's a sign of faith. Courageous expectation and the provision of God. I'm going to close off with these words and we'll take communion. Find rest in the Redeemer by resting from your works. As we take the Lord's Supper together, there's a way in which like, it should shoot us forward to one particular passage in the book of Hebrews. The picture of Sabbath rest all the way from the beginning the way that God rested from his works and how he instituted a Sabbath for the people of God. Jesus is the ultimate Sabbath rest for his people. Like we need rest. Like we started there, right? What, where do you find rest? We don't just need kind of superficial rest. We need rest from our works, rest from our weariness, trying to do it on our own. In Hebrews chapter four says it this way. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Find rest in the Redeemer by resting from your works. The one who finds the Redeemer rests from their works. There might be some of you this morning that maybe this is what you need to hear, that you need to find rest in the Redeemer by returning from your wandering. Because you've been trying to find out trying to find rest in other places, going out after other fraudulent places of rest. The one who finds the Redeemer rests from his works and returns from his wandering. Isaiah 44, 22 says this. It says, I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Let's bow our heads. Bow our heads for a minute.